Come on with it. Hey, y'all. Jigger Jicky here. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for spending this time with me. I appreciate you being here. In the 1980s, in the congregation I was serving, there was an elderly gentleman named Jerry. Jerry had grown up near St. Louis and had learned to drive on a Model T Ford. Right out of high school, he went to work in the shoe industry and became a traveling salesman taking large footlockers of shoes from town to town, store to store. Shoes got into Jerry's blood, and he never left the business. Even when I knew him, as he was cruising into his 80s, he was still fitting shoes on feet and a store at a nearby mall. Not because he had to, not because he needed the money, but simply because he loved to match people with the right shoes. And shoes could lead Jerry to tell some good stories. I recall one in particular. This happened around the turn of the 20th century, just before Jerry got into the business. It involved the U.S. Shoe Company. In the early 1900s, U.S. Shoe was expanding westward and decided to create two sales territories in the western half of the nation. To do this, the company drew a horizontal line across the western states and established two huge territories. At the time, it was a no-brainer as to which would be more lucrative. The Southern Territory included rapidly growing Texas and Southern California. The North was Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, none of which were especially populous states. Then USU found two prime candidates and held a ceremony to draw straws. The longer straw indicating the profitable south, the shorter straw, the sparse north. The men drew their straws and assumed their mantles as winner and loser. While the winner in the south enjoyed already established shoe contracts in the cities and stores along the heavily traveled railroad, the loser in the north scraped his way from town to town across the wind-blown plain states. But as the loser bounced from little store to little store in the cold and empty north, he opened an account with a fellow named Jim, who had a dry goods store in a little town in Wyoming. Jim took a shine to the loser and maintained accounts with him as he opened his next store in a neighboring town. Jim's full name was James Cash Penny. Yep, J.C. Penny. In the next couple of decades, J.C. Penney opened a couple hundred stores across the nation, and the, quote, loser would have the contract, the shoe contract, on all of them. Meanwhile, down south, the, quote, winner was falling on hard times. As passenger travel shifted from trains to airplanes, he saw his railroad commissary store accounts go up in smoke. Then, as hundreds of mom-and-pop stores either shuttered or sold out to rapidly growing chain stores like J.C. Penney, the winner lost increasingly more accounts. My friend Jerry loved the story because, he said, it reminded him that no matter how dark the cloud looks, there can always be a shiny new J.C. Penney sewn into its lining. I think we've all heard, and some of us have even lived within such ironies, where bad luck, 
becomes good luck. Here's one of mine. When I started to high school back in 1968, my father forced me to take Latin. I wanted to take Spanish along with most of my friends. But Dad said no. Latin was the language for smart people, which I thought should have disqualified me. But honor thy father and mother and all that jazz, so I took Latin. It was awful. Previous students had left an omen for me by defacing the covers of the textbook, which was titled Using Latin. These previous students had taken their pens and scrawled I died above the book's title. Hence, I died using Latin. I recall seeing this on my textbook and thinking, this is not going to end well for me. The teacher, Miss Hortenstein, was sharp and graded like a beast. Grace and mercy were as foreign to her as Latin was to me. There were about 30 of us in the class, and I began to imagine us as zebras on the savannah. Miss Hortenstein as the lioness. And let me tell you, I was a slow zebra. In no time, I was badly maimed. But I managed to escape the year with my life. I passed with a D. Unfortunately, however, Latin was a two-year commitment. I'd made it through Latin one, but Latin two lay ahead. And the lioness was still on the hunt, and I wasn't yet off the savannah. Meanwhile, over in Spanish class, my friends were all sliding through like greased pigs. The Spanish teacher, who was already on a bullet train to dementia, was handing out A's and B's like parting gifts. After my summer break, the only Latin I could remember was Agricolae Sunt. They are farmers. By the way, I think of this every time I see that commercial. We are farmers. I'm sure some of you listening have taken Latin, so you know that it is a complex language, especially for the 15-year-old boy I was. Latin not only has six verb tenses, and geez, those were tough enough, it also has five so-called noun declensions. That is, every noun has different spellings depending on where it shows up in a sentence. You gotta be kidding me. I mean, in English, I can write, the dog bit the man, or the man was bitten by the dog, but in either case, the dog stays the same, D-O-G. Not so Latin. I would go to the chalkboard in terror and write my sentences, only to hear Miss Hortenstein roaring, no, 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 you're putting your genitives where your ablatives should be, which sounded naughty or even pornographic to me, but what did I know? Anyway, by Christmas break, my zebra legs were so badly maimed that I could barely walk, let alone run. So it wasn't surprising when, right after spring break, the lioness tore me apart and left me bleeding and dismembered on the savannah. I died misusing Latin. I failed Latin, too. I was a loser. Unfortunately, the academic rules, as always, were sinister. If I didn't pass Latin II, I wouldn't get credit for barely passing Latin I. So between 10th and 11th grade, while my friends who had completed two easy years of Spanish were doing cannonballs off the high dive, 
I was spending June and July back in Miss Hortenstein's room. But this is where my fortunes changed. To start with, instead of the 30 or so students who had been with me in Latin 1 and 2, the summer school class consisted of only the four or five of us slowest zebras. This made Miss Hortenstein a different teacher. Instead of having us sit in individual school desks, she seated us at a table with her where she was much more gracious. She slowed down and explained things carefully and encouraged our questions. She read the confusion on our faces and would go back over things to be sure we had understood them. To my own amazement, I began to get it. I started to see how the tenses and declensions worked. And lo and behold, Latin began to fascinate me. I started asking Miss Hortenstein for more passages to translate. She lent me a little book of Julius Caesar's writings, which I took on like a wonderful puzzle. I can still remember Caesar's opening words, Gallia est omnis divisa in partes traits. All Gaul is divided into three parts. Looking back, I see that my Latin teacher, Miss Hortenstein, was in fact the best English teacher I had in high school. Because for better or worse, the way we do English grammar is based on the structure of Latin grammar. I gained understanding of Latin. I began to master English grammar. My torrid summer school summer of 1970 would pay many dividends down the road. When I got to college, I finally took Spanish. And because it's a Romance language, which means it comes directly from Latin, it felt like home. And I did well in Spanish. Thank you, Miss Hortenstein. In seminary, things got a little tougher. There I had to take Hebrew and Greek, languages written in different alphabets. But again, my knowledge of how languages work made Hebrew and Greek much less formidable. Thank you, Miss Hortenstein. Eventually, I would move to Africa, where I would take on French, another language derived directly from Latin. Learning French was fun. Thank you again, Miss Hortenstein. And all of this roots back to my failure in Latin more than 40 years ago. Today, I'm an English teacher. I've been one for a while. Now and then, as I look out over my 20 to 30 students seated in my class, I catch a glimpse of myself in one or more of them. I see the slow, limping zebra who has already decided that he's no good at this. I can hear his thoughts. I suck at English. I died using English. Of course, I want to reach that kid who reminds me of myself. But in that classroom alone, I've got at least a couple dozen more students whom I must also attend to. And I teach four more classes of equal number, so I've got roughly a hundred students to look after. Thus, I miss the facial cues, I don't get the time to slow down, and I have few opportunities for spontaneous one-on-one -on -one conversations with my students. Sometimes I recall my summer of 1970 with Miss Hortenstein, and I picture myself teaching English at a table with only five or six students, or heck, even 10 or 12 students. And I'm certain that in such a context, I would be a better teacher. I could help a lot of slow zebras 
bind their wounds, get on their feet, and run with grace. I could help them turn themselves into winners. I'm going on 16 years now as a public school teacher, and every year I become more convinced that we could solve hundreds of problems in American society if we had reduced the student-to-teacher ratio in our public schools. Struggling students, as well as excelling students, would get more positive attention. Teachers would become more relaxed and pleasant to be around. Dropout rates would fall, graduation rates would rise, and schools would send students into the world with more confidence and a greater desire to contribute to society. Maybe one day America will make those changes. In the meantime, if you know students who are struggling, give them some positive attention and remind them that the world is full of stories in which losers became winners. And that could be their story too. Vino Verica. Ajikuragis. Us Latin doll. Evidently, Mr. Ringo is an educated man. Remember, you can get notices on every episode released by following the podcast at one of these Apple Podcast, Podbean, Google Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio. If you want, you can leave a kind review or a mean one. Pop over to the blog at SugarTicky.com. You can follow podcast on social media at SugarTicky on Twitter, at SugarTicky underscore podcast on Instagram, and on Facebook, I'm SugarTicky SugarTicky. The dude's so nice, they named me twice. Better than all of that, send me an email at SugarTicky at gmail.com. Catch you next time. Be kind to one another, and come on with it. Wish I could say that in Latin.